Today's reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. And it's titled, A New Heaven and a New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Brendan. I am delighted to be here with you, leading you through this chapter 23 of Exodus. Now, what does Revelation have to do with Exodus, you might be asking? Well, stick around and find out. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start looking at our passage. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, um, and we thank you that you've given it to us. Please open your heart, open our hearts to what you have to say today, Lord, uh, and open up what you have to say to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're continuing our journey through the book of Exodus this week. We uh, have now passed all of what you might call the cinematic portion of Exodus, the events that you can see depicted in any number of uh, Moses movies of varying accuracy. Now we're in the remainder of the book, um, which is a handful of events, but um, mostly it's an apparently verbatim record of, uh, of God telling Moses what he had to relay to the people, or rather Moses saying what God had told to him. And, um, this is coming in a, in a transition between Israel's sort of darkest hour and their brightest day. Um, there were slaves in Egypt. They are destined for blessing to inherit the land that God promised their fathers, but right now they're in the middle. They don't have the security or order that is provided as the only consolation of being someone else's property. Uh, but they don't have the foundation of years and the traditions of society to carry them forward. They are homeless and they are traditionless and clueless and powerless and gutless. And they are standing in the desert, being told that their old life is over, but a better one awaits them if they pay attention and follow the God who led them out of Egypt by his miraculous powers. And the last couple of chapters um, have been the beginnings of those rules, rules about property concerning the treatment of, uh, of servants and slaves, social responsibilities. God is laying down the foundations for a godly society he is intending to build with Israel. It's the beginning state for a body of people that glorifies him because the people in that holy nation and in that body of God's people live in godly ethical ways themselves. He is building in this passage the heaven on earth scenario that we won't see fulfilled entirely until Jesus comes again that we see depicted in that revelation reading. A holy city, a worthy dwelling place for God amongst his people where there will be no more grief and pain because the scripture says the old order of things has passed away. And here in Exodus, 
God is beginning with his chosen people. He's beginning this process of scraping out the remnants of the old order and building a new one. And so we arrive here at chapter 23. If you have your Bibles with you, following along in chapter 23 may be helpful for you. There's a fair bit. I'll put it up on the screen as well. Um, Chapter 23 kind of has three main portions, and we'll look at them all. But the the first lot is sort of laws about what seems to be justice and mercy and fairness. And then there's laws about tradition and feasting and Sabbath. Um, And then at the end, there's a promise from God that he will be with them as powerless and clueless as they are. Uh, And as long as they do not become faithless, he will remain there leading them and blessing them. Because this mob of barbarian slaves are going to conquer cities and be the foundation that God is going to build heaven on earth with, what we call the kingdom of God. And they will absolutely need his help to accomplish that. So let's look at the chapter itself, beginning with verses one to three. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd when doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. The law by which we judge each other has to be fairly applied. Truth is the benchmark of justice here and it's important that as much as humanly possible, everyone is held accountable for their actions and no one is punished for a crime they did not commit. False reports, for example, distort a judge's ability to tell the truth and to judge a situation fairly as does the desire to fit in with the crowd and say what is appealing or popular to them. Now, none of that is news to anyone here. Um, To any of us, we we know how destructive rumors can be and how everyone who gathers in a a sort of a crowd situation to attempt justice tends to get dumber. Um, But the last line in this little uh, patch of verses is particularly interesting. Don't show favoritism to the poor in a lawsuit, that's a warning against elevating compassion above justice. A God-honoring society must apply its laws equally to everyone, regardless of how hated or pitied they are. Now verses four and five. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, it's the person who hated the donkey, presumably does not hate you, Um, fallen down under its load, do not leave it there, be sure to help them with it. Now the enemy in this verse here is like a personal enemy, it's not like a a foreign invader enemy, you're not to help the enemy army uh, kill you, it's not a suicidal document. Um, But it's like if someone you normally wouldn't help because they've treated you badly, or because there's some personal animosity there, but God is building these people into a community that is supposed to be driven by love. Love for God and love for one another. And so he says here, this basic standard of compassion is not to be suspended when you have personal issues in place. God's people are going to have conflicts with each other and as much as possible, we aren't to nurse those grudges. Then we get to verses six and eight. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge And do not put an innocent or an honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the innocent. Who see and twist the words of the innocent. Um, Ironically, a tongue twister. Earlier, we had the opposite warning. We had don't favor the poor in a lawsuit. Here, we have the most obvious warning. Don't deny justice to the poor 
just because they are not in a position to offer a bribe. If you falsely convict someone under such a condition, God will not fail to hold you accountable for perverting the law. Then we come to verse 9, the last part in this first section. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Fairly straightforward law, but one worth noting. Israel is about to adopt a series of laws and behaviors that make the Hebrew people very distinct in the world. They're being set apart for a purpose. And since their time in Egypt and for the thousands of years following up to the modern Jewish people, in fact, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. Societies don't like groups that stick up. And in Jewish society, it'll be the communities of the Gentiles who stick up, those who are going to come and live there in some number for their own reasons. There's going to be a very human instinct to blame inordinate amounts of problems on them, to, make, to believe them guilty more readily than a Jewish person would be. The modern word for this is racism, and God is not a fan, nor should his people be. So that's the first portion of chapter 23 in this law-giving portion of Exodus. And if you've been listening, then you'll notice there's kind of a weird bump in the rhythm about halfway through there. We have, don't lie in court, don't convict people in the court of public opinion, don't let compassion warp your judgment, don't fail to help your enemies with their wayward animals, don't deny justice to the poor, don't take bribes, don't crack down on foreigners. So the natural question arises, what's this law about helping a fallen donkey of your enemy doing in the middle of a bunch of laws about justice? Seems to throw the, the sense of the whole thing out. And it's a good question, and I had to think about it for some time myself, but the connection that sung out to me seems to be all of these verses, one to nine, are about favoritism. It's about resisting the temptation to bend the rules that we would normally expect to apply, whether it applies to someone we like or someone we don't like. The laws and judgments of the law are the most obvious place this applies, that must be applied equally, but it comes into our personal lives as well. God's people are supposed to have an expectation that the law forms rigid boundaries to which everyone must conform. Even those people we like, even those with money, even those who are already doing it tough. But the law and the court where the law is upheld is not the only place we have expectations for each other in society. We do have a thing we call common decency which is not just nice, but it's actually vital for a society to function in a godly way. For example, if a man is driving along and he sees a woman pulled over to try and change a flat tire, a tire, flat tire? I'm having fun today. Anyway, there's a flat tire, okay? Um, he's compelled, not by law, to stop and see if she needs help changing that tire. That is common decency. If he sees a man pulled over with a flat tire, he is compelled to keep driving unless he is specifically flagged down. That guy's already having a rough moment. You don't need to compound it with unsolicited advice. <laughs> that, too, is a kind of common decency. And for the ancient Hebrews, it was common decency to help someone out if their ox was wandering away or it was falling down under its load. But God says here that the same expectation we have for equal treatment under the law needs to extend to our common decency to each other. Why? Well... I can think of a bunch of reasons. It creates people who are uncommonly kind in the world. Other people you don't know depend on people you don't like. Um, 
It's hard to hate someone who does nice things to you. That's a pretty good thing. Take your pick. Either way, this part of the chapter is about a radical rejection of the desire to look out for our group at the expense of everyone else's group and to throw them to the wolves. God's people are going to thrive together or they will suffer together. And they do a lot of both through the history of the Bible and beyond. So the next verses then are about Sabbaths and feasts, the ritual holidays and the rest days the Jews used to recall in their society what God has done for them. Now you get much more details about these feasts and, uh, and particular rituals in Leviticus, but we get this flyover version now, starting at verses 10 to 13. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days of work, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips." One day of rest per seven days for the animals and the people. One day of rest uh, per seven years for the land. There's some some practical reasons for these laws. Um, The poor benefit from the land Sabbath, and the weekly Sabbath means everyone in Israel knows that they're not working to the bone at least um, for one day of the week, even in the lean years. Some people say that the land Sabbath, the idea of letting the, the land sort of fallow and recover for a year out of seven is a little bit like we do in modern farming. I'm not sure. I don't think the Hebrews were doing the, the super dense, high yield, suck the soil dry type farming we do today. Either way, but the primary reason is a more obvious one. It's about remembering God and what he has done. Remembering the author of the universe who made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So we rest on the seventh. And remembering that into the everyday experience of every Jew in every generation and every walk of life. God doesn't live on a shelf in their house or live somewhere else where they get around to visiting him. His reality is manifested in their calendar whether they want him to or not. It's a similar story for the festivals that we're going to see described in the next few verses. Verses 14 to 15. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. This is the Passover feast. Now this is also programmed into the Jewish calendar, a reminder of how they fled Egypt, how God delivered them with a mighty hand, how the angel of death passed over them because the blood of the lamb was on their doors. It's there to remind them of that and also there as a, um, so that when Jesus turns up and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the whole picture starts to come together. Verse 16, celebrate the festival of the harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in the field. This is what we call the Feast of Weeks, sometimes called Pentecost. Um, it comes seven weeks after the Passover festival. And it's there to remember for the Hebrews the event they are living at the moment they get that message from Moses. It's about Moses bringing the law down from the mountain that God has given them. They are to remember that by this festival. And then verses 16 
all the rest of 16 and 17, celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from your field. Three times a year, all men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. This is called the Feast of Booths, what we might call the Feast of Tents in modern language. It's to remind generations of Hebrews um, and the generations after that they once wandered in the wilderness, they were homeless until God gave them a promised land. Thus, they spend time uh, living outside of their established houses in these little, little booths, little tents as part of that celebration. And attending these festivals is compulsory for the men of the nation. Women to give us some slack here because historically they are likely to be the primary caregiver for their family. Um, but they are not banned at the festivals. It's merely not compulsory for them to attend. It's sufficient the family send their men as representatives. Female attendance is optional, and we see that a few times in Scripture. So now we have four acts of God that are programmed into the Hebrew calendar and the way they live their lives. God made the world in seven days. He lifted his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He gave his people a law by which they would be made worthy and civilized. God delivered his people out of the wilderness where they dwelt in tents into the land he promised them. Now, the next two verses contain some rules about behavior and offerings at those festivals. Most are pretty straightforward. See if you can pick the odd one out. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of your first fruits of your, of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. And do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Was that a big problem? <laughs> Jewish teenagers sneaking out at night, the latest craze, making goat pudding. Um, it's hard to imagine that God would specifically ban this unless it was something that was being done. Maybe it was an Egyptian dish. Uh, who knows? But there is something at a gut level that is kind of weird about that, right? Cooking a young goat in specifically its mother's milk. If I made you my signature dish, the chicken noodle omelet, which is chicken, eggs, noodles, and Master Foods all-purpose seasoning. If I made that for you, you would be delighted because it's amazing. But if I then added, you know, the chicken breast in this omelet, it's actually the chicken that laid the eggs in the omelet. Now it's weird. There's something inherently dark about that. And even more strongly with the goat example, the, um, the thing that is dark about it is the mingling of life and death. Mother's milk is meant to give life. Eating meat is, in the first place, a kind of concession to death in this fallen world. It's putting life and death in the same pot. It's blurring that line in a weird way. And the other rules here have similar themes. You bring the best of your first fruits, life, fullness, healthiness. Um, not the defective and the withered crops a reminder of death and deficiency and brokenness. The fat of the festival offerings are to be consumed the same day they are given as sacrifices, the choicest cuts, the best part of the meat. They're not to be kept overnight until morning when they will become aged, kind of second-rate, diminished. The blood of the sacrifice is not to be offered along with anything containing yeast. The spilling of the blood of a sacrifice is a sacred symbol that um, reminds them of that Passover scene in Egypt, and the Passover celebration is supposed to be yeast-free. So the concern here is about preserving these symbols, these little implicit signs by which they remember who God is and what he's done. And that's meant to convey to the generations coming after them a clear and potent and unblurred message about God. 
whether it's the feasts or the Sabbaths or anything else, ritual is a society's memory. The day Australia stops celebrating Anzac Day will be the day it forgets its military history and its veterans. The day that all the Western countries finally scrub Easter and Christmas from their public holidays will be the day that they have given up their connection to their Christian roots. And the day that Israel forgets its symbols and its feasts and its Sabbaths will be the day they forget God and what he has done for them. Therefore, he gives them every tool he can so that they do not forget before the chance has passed. Because what comes next is going to test them very severely and it will require them to grow into a role of greatness. And that will need them to be close to God. His war is coming for them. Ahead of the Israelites, where they are standing in the wilderness, is more wilderness. And past that wilderness is the River Jordan, and past that river is the walled and unconquered city of Jericho, and past that more cities and hostile tribes who do not recognize the claim of the Israelites to that land. They do not worship the God of the Hebrews. They worship Baal, a lightning-throwing warrior god whose mythology includes him castrating his father, El, who made the world and seizing the throne of heaven. Now, Scripture does not explicitly say that this is a, uh, a cult as a satanic fabrication composed specifically to mock the Creator and then spread in the land that he promised his servant Abraham, but I would call that a solid bet. And the outworking of Baal's religion was full of unpleasantry up to and including child sacrifice. And these are the people that Israel was charged with driving out of the land at all costs. So God is leading his people to conquer a land where this warped religion exists, to topple every altar, to scrub the names of these false gods from the history of the world. And so to conclude this chapter, God gives them his promise. If his people follow his instruction, they will overcome his enemies and they will experience his blessing. This is verses 20 through 31. It's a bit of a long one, so follow along. See, I am sending an angel, or a messenger in this case, probably Moses, ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you the place I have prepared, to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and will bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or um, worship them and follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away your sickness from among you. Oops, I've gone too far. I will take away your sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw confusion into every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. 
I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give your, into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. As a reminder of the law, this part is very simple. Don't worship other gods, obey the real God. But as a part of God's plan, it's a flash of insight into God's intention with his grand plan in the world. He's making a new people. He's making them with new radical standards of fairness and love for their neighbors, with their own customs and rituals to remember and reinforce these new things. And if they are to preserve that culture and prevent it from being absorbed and lost in the greater world of tribes and kingdoms around them, they must be masters of that land. False gods will taint the foundation of that moment, which is meant to be the starting point for a place where God meets his people on earth like he did in the garden. And we know, because we have the rest of scripture, that the Israelites don't really drive the Canaanites fully out. They intermarry in some cases, they take some as, as vassals, as little client states, they compromise here and there, they cease to honor God and they lose his blessing in battle and then they lose to the enemy attacks. And Israel, in all of its thousands of years of history to date, has never fully occupied the boundaries described in this passage. Not even in the days of Solomon. Because it was tainted at its foundations by this failure to drive those people out. And the story of the Bible is this relentless drumbeat of God's people fighting over and over again against an alien culture in them with false gods that demands they sacrifice their children and betray the God who saved them. That's the tragedy of their story. So what does this mean for us? This is a big chapter and there's more than one focus, but the commonality is that God's people behave in a certain way that makes them distinct in the world. God's people need to have an incredibly high standard of justice and decency. God doesn't play favorites, neither should we. God's people remember him implicitly in symbolic ways and explicitly with tradition and ritual. They do everything they can to communicate their faith to the generations after them. And God's people listen to his instructions and they play their part in making the kingdom of God a place on earth. And they permit no other gods to be part of that kingdom. The Israelites in the Old Testament are God's people. They are named for God's servant Israel and the covenant that God made with Israel in his household. And the Jewish law is specific to them. God's people today are called Christians. They are named for God's son, Jesus Christ, and the promise God made that all who call on the name of Jesus would be saved. And we have different holidays and we have some different symbols, but we are God's people today. And while some of the specifics no longer apply, the principles must absolutely apply to us. Because though we know that God's kingdom will not be fully complete until he himself completes it with Jesus' return, it only advances and expands and thrives in keeping with the obedience of God's people and God's commensurate blessing on them. We may not have many opportunities to express our uh, high standards for, for justice because many of us are not in a position to be uh, legal judges 
in a sense, but we have no excuse if we are not leading the pack in our workplaces and communities and extended families when it comes to showing human decency. Especially with people we don't get along with and especially with people who don't have any patience to hear the message of the gospel. They can decline to hear the message that you are sharing to them. That's their right, but what they can't deny is how you show a proactive God-honoring decency in your actions to them even if they might be offensive to you. We don't have the same rigid system of clean and unclean foods, of uh, prescribed Sabbaths that the Israelites have, but we do take time to celebrate Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection. We uh, have a tradition of gathering every Sunday to worship and explore the word. We take communion every month, we baptize and we celebrate the faith of new believers. All of these things are traditions and rituals of God's people. Now, some of the features of some of these traditions and how we celebrate them might be scripturally unnecessary or maybe a little bit corny, but we do these things because God requires us to take our faith seriously and to communicate it to the next generation, to follow his commands when he commands us to commemorate these things for the benefit of those who come after it as much as anyone else. It communicates the message of the saving work that Jesus has done to those who follow And we don't get a promised land and a command to drive out a false religion from it. But that is okay because the Israelites, God's nation of Israel, accomplished God's first purpose for them, limping as they did. They were the foundation from which God would build his kingdom on earth. And that foundation was compromised and shaken by trials through history. But we have the most amazing blessings here on earth because of them. We have a system of law that says we are all equal before it. We have uh, an expected level of decency to each other that is jaw-dropping to people from other cultures and nations. Not to mention any other time in human history. And we have the teaching that promises that our Lord Jesus, who came out of the nation of Israel to fulfill its laws and to throw wide the doors of the kingdom of God, that he died and rose again to promise us eternal life and salvation from our sins if we would accept him. Christians are of every tribe and every nation in the world is our promised land and there is nowhere for people to be driven to. We are not commanded to drive anyone out, but ourselves to go into the places of the world where God is least known and to make him known there. The advancement of the gospel in this world to those least reached peoples, those subcultures in our own countries where he is unknown, that is our conquest, where God goes before us to prepare the way. So that's chapter 23. What's God requiring of you today? Do you need to think about the way that you treat those with whom you have differences so that you can better reflect how God would have us love our enemies? Do you need to say grace more deliberately, to attend church more regularly, to get baptized, to deliberately honor in your life the traditions of the faithful which strengthen and maintain our church? Or do you need to consider again how you are taking part in this great conquest for the kingdom, seeing the places in your daily life where God is least known and finding a way to speak to those friends or that family member, those work colleagues about Jesus and what he's done? Or even to answer the call to mission and speak the gospel in places where it may never have been spoken before. 
God establishes his kingdom in the world through his people and the day he comes to complete it himself, he will fill that kingdom with saints who have fearlessly and tirelessly and obediently been doing his work to become his holy people in the world. Let's pray. Father God, you have had this plan since before the world began. You knew that there would be a garden, a fall, a savior, a church, and a final return, and every step of the way you have been working in history to build up your name in the world and to guide the steps of your people. Help us to best serve you by building your kingdom in this world the way you need it built today. Not a promised land, but built upon a sacred promise out of a people whom you have loved and reformed and whom you build up every day. Help us to be just and decent in how we live so that we are known in our lives for how fair and good we are as your people. Help us to honor you in our traditions so that those who come after us will be raised in the knowledge of you. And help us to have the courage and the insight to see how, how to advance your gospel in this world in the way you would have each of us do it, Father. For those called to mission, give courage and support to take that step in faith. And for every one of us, all of us called to share the gospel, give us insight to detect those opportunities to speak all that you've done and the heart to speak that message which someone had the heart to speak to us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.